Max Rack. Welcome to The Local, your daily dose of hometown news and democracy. It's April 14th, 2020. I'm Jefferson Smith from Portland, Oregon. Today on The Local, your quick six headlines. Ed Johnson from the Oregon Law Center on navigating the eviction moratorium in Oregon. And our interview with Sonia Montalbano, candidate for Multnomah County Circuit Court Judge. People are now calling into question, is the judicial system really the fair, the the level playing field that it's supposed to be? First up, it's time for today's Quick 6 Local Rundown. I'm Jefferson Smith, and it is Tuesday, April 14th. On this day, back in the day, 2005, Multnomah County had issued 3,000 marriage licenses starting in 2004, and then Measure 36 banned same-sex marriage at the ballot that same year. And on this day, April 14, 2005, the Oregon State Supreme Court decided Lee and Kennedy versus the state of Oregon, ruling that Multnomah County lacked the authority and invalidated all those marriage licenses. Same-sex marriage was later legalized in Oregon in 2014 after U.S. District Court Judge Michael McShane ruled that the state's 2004 constitutional amendment, that Measure 36, banning such marriages, was in fact unconstitutional. Courts matter. As voters in Wisconsin decided yesterday. The western states have a pact. Governors for Oregon, Washington, and California announced on Monday they have a shared vision for reopening businesses and managing the coronavirus in the future. Under this Western States Pact, they said, people's health comes first. Any decision to ease stay-at-home orders would not come if it endangers people's lives. Governors said they would be looking at data, specifically a declining rate of virus spread before any large-scale reopening. They also outlined that public health officials would focus on four priorities to control the virus going forward. One, fighting outbreaks, particularly among older populations. Second, ensuring adequate hospital and health care capacity for new cases. Third, reducing disease impacts on disadvantaged communities. And fourth, developing better systems for testing and tracking the disease. The message came hours after President Trump tweeted the ultimate authority to reopen states rested with him, not with governors. Oregon had 57 new coronavirus cases confirmed on Monday. That's 1,584 cases confirmed total. 53 people in Oregon are known to have died from COVID-19. COVID-19.healthdata.org now projecting about 250 deaths from the coronavirus in Oregon by the summer. Cases have been confirmed in at least 28 of Oregon's 36 counties. The most positive tests are in the more densely populated Willamette Valley. Marion, Multnomah, and Washington counties together account for nearly two-thirds of the state's total confirmed cases. Remember that confirmed cases tell only part of the story. The recently published study suggests that Oregon has had approximately 7,000 infections. That's five times as many as measured by tests. Current science is suggesting that looking back at how overall mortality rates have changed will give a better indication of COVID-19-related deaths since testing has been so limited. Washington State, as of Saturday, had confirmed 10,411 cases and 508 deaths. The United States had over 22,000 confirmed deaths. The country lost just under 7,000 American soldiers in Iraq and Afghanistan combined. There's been a surge in gun purchases in Oregon. From February 1st to April 5th, the Oregon State Police reported a 42% increase in background checks over the same time last year. And nationwide, small arms analytics and forecasting, SAF, maybe they pronounce it SAFE, 
estimates a year-over-year increase in firearm sales of 85% in March. When asked what people were scared of, local gun store owners said, Everything. They buy guns and ammunition so they can go home and sit on their couch and defend their stash of toilet paper from the pending apocalypse. First-time gun owners have cited fear of looting an anti-Asian sentiment as reason for buying a gun. Some experts are concerned about mental health and domestic violence while people are at home. Some crisis hotlines have reported seeing an absolute flood in calls. A 2015 study found that self-defense gun use occurs in less than 1% of all crimes when the victim and perpetrator encounter each other. But the idea still roots itself in our brains. Two-thirds of gun-owning Americans told Pew Research in 2017 that they own guns for protection. Tune into the local tomorrow to hear from Hillary Ulig, Oregon chapter chair of Moms Demand Action. Oregon says it has fixed the weekend stumble that told some laid-off workers to restart their jobless claims. The Oregon Employment Department said Monday that it has fixed a breakdown in its claim system that wrongly told some laid-off workers they had to restart their previously filed benefit claims. So if you want to know what happened, laid-off workers whose benefit claims had been approved must still refile each week to continue receiving benefits. On Sunday, though, some workers who went to make their weekly filing online, well, they found the state system instructed them to start it all again. Sunday's stumble was the latest in a series of setbacks for the department. It's been overwhelmed by an unprecedented number of new jobless claims. The department said that Sunday's lapse affected only a small portion of the Oregonians seeking to file claims. But even a small percentage of the 270,000 Oregonians who have sought jobless claims would affect kind of a lot of people. For those who have completed their initial claim and continue to file weekly claims, the restart error has been identified and fixed. If they tried Sunday and got the restart error for the first time, if you retry now, it ought to work. At least that's what the employment department says. That said, ask any of your friends who've tried calling the unemployment department. They've probably tried calling lots and lots of times. Those folks are getting flooded. Portland's going to open three temporary emergency outdoor shelters. Portland area governments will open three tent villages this week in order to give those affected by homelessness a safe place to sleep during the pandemic. City Hall will provide tents, sleeping bags, and cots on elevated platforms. Two sites will be located on the central east side, another in Old Town. The three sites will be fenced with 45 tent platforms at each location, separated by at least 10 feet. People will not be allowed to bring in their own tents. Playing off the Star Wars-themed Right to Dream 2, R2-D2, the effort is called the Creating Conscious Communities with People Outside, or C-3PO. The tent villages will offer a few essentials, drinking water, a phone charging station, a cooking area, regular trash service. Local officials also promise a shower truck that will circulate among the three villages. I'll give you between. I'm pretty sure it's among. Multnomah County has turned local hospitality spaces, including the Oregon Convention Center and the Jupiter Hotel, into homeless shelters. To be clear, those new venues don't add shelter capacity. They just increase the physical distance between people sleeping indoors. The three chosen shelter locations are at Southeast Water Avenue and Main Street, Southeast Water Avenue and Salmon Street, and Northwest Broadway and Hoyt. And in just a minute, you'll hear from Ed Johnson on resources provided by the Oregon Law Center for low-income Oregonians navigating unemployment and housing. From the Department of Warm Cookies and Milk, Oregon Health and Science University has performed its first heart transplant since four cardiologists abruptly left in 2018. A 68-year-old Oregonian is now recovering after receiving the heart two weeks ago. OHSU's heart program stopped after staff complained of burnout, personality clashes, and an overall lack of support. 
It reopened last summer after the hospital researched what happened and recruited new cardiologists. Since restarting, the program has implanted three heart pumps, but this is the first complete heart transplant it has performed. The recipient didn't share their name, but they did share a few words. I can't believe how beautifully my heart is working and how far I've come. Enjoy the new ticker, and thank you to the healthcare workers out there. After all this, when ball games reopen, will we stand to honor healthcare workers who risk their lives to defend ours in the era of the coronavirus? We'll see. And that's today's Quick Six Local Rundown. I'm Jefferson Smith. You're listening to The Local. And here's Emily Gilliland to introduce what's up next. Thanks, Jefferson. Now, Ed Johnson from the Oregon Law Center. The Oregon Law Center provides legal support for low-income Oregonians. With unemployment at record highs due to COVID-19, their support is shifting to help those navigating unemployment and those at risk of losing their housing. Ed, what are you seeing right now as primary impacts on low-income Oregonians during the pandemic? Well, um, I mean, there's a lot of things happening all at once. It's a very fluid environment. But I would say, on the whole, I'm really proud of the way that Oregon has responded. Um, I mean, the the fixes are happening very quickly, and um, perfection is probably not a reasonable expectation. But um, the goal is to try to do two things. Number one, we don't want to make more people homeless in the middle of this pandemic. And number two, we need to figure out a way to keep our homeless, our currently homeless population safe. So uh, there's a series of things that have happened. Um, the, The main legal change has come from the governor's executive order which basically has stopped evictions in Oregon through June 30th. So that's a big deal. Um, Landlords cannot give notices for non-payment of rent or for no cause, uh, at least through June 30th. And, you know, that makes sense from a couple of different perspectives. First of all, uh, the spread of the disease uh, will increase if there are more people who are homeless and unable to uh, access basic personal hygiene. Uh, also, just going to court. I mean, in Multnomah County, there's about 50 eviction cases a day during normal times, and having everyone jammed into that courtroom is a terrible idea right now. But also, I think everyone's aware that tens of thousands of Oregonians have lost their jobs, and expecting them to pay rent right now uh, is not realistic. Now, of course, landlords are not responsible for this pandemic either. And so hopefully there will be some sort of mortgage forgiveness or at least some ability to rework your mortgage or your loan to tack payments onto the back end uh, because a lot of landlords are losing their income at the same time. What do you see as the lasting impact of some of this? Or maybe a better way to answer that, ask that question is a moratorium on paying rent if that bill continues to stack up. Even if you, you know, that allows you not to get kicked out of your apartment for three months, you name the number of months. If the landlord keeps adding that bill and say, oh, now you owe me, you know, $3,600. And maybe that, you know, maybe, well, people pay that off 50 bucks a month at a time. It just increases their rent and they can pay it off over, I don't know, that would take several years to pay off. What are the, talk to us a little bit about projecting out or maybe trying to project out right now is crazy, but project that out a little bit. 
Well, uh, I'm really worried about that. And I think most advocates are really, really worried about that. I mean, the, the pessimistic view is that we're just uh, delaying what is basically going to be a disaster in July, August, September when things open up and all of this rent comes due and people can't pay it. Um, but there is some planning going on around it and a couple of sort of optimistic notes. Um, you know, one is in Multnomah County, uh, and other jurisdictions, cities and counties have the ability to kind of do their own moratoria. Um, the, uh, in Multnomah County, you have six months to catch up. And that may not be enough, as you just pointed out, but um, it's something. Uh, the other kind of glimmer of hope is if unemployment insurance works and people actually get their unemployment insurance, uh, that uh, should bring people up to, and again, not everyone's eligible. If you're undocumented or you're you know, part of the gig economy, this isn't going to work for you unless we come up with a workaround. But for a lot of people, you can get 60% of your former income through the state uninsurance, uh, unemployment insurance program. And my understanding is that the CARES Act money uh, actually gets to people that that could bring people up to about 80 or 90% of their former income. So um, it's possible that people will have some, uh, even if it's lowered, some ability to pay the rent as this goes. And so hopefully those large bills that you just referred to are not as common as I fear they might be. And how do renters activate that moratorium uh, if they're not in a position to pay rent? So um, in Multnomah County and the city of Portland, and, uh, you know, there's weird things happening. There's uh, Clackamas County has their own uh, moratorium that uh, apparently is only available on YouTube. I haven't actually found it in writing yet. But um, the, the in Multnomah County and in Portland, the, uh, the key thing for renters to know is you have to notify your landlord that you have reduced income because of COVID-19. And you can do that by, you know, taking a photo of your layoff or furlough notice, any other written proof um, will activate that and that'll give you six months uh, to pay back your rent. But even if you're not, even if you don't do that, the statewide governor executive order still applies to you and your landlord cannot move forward with an eviction at least through June 30th, regardless of whether you provide that proof or not. I'm looking at this uh, Seattle U School of Law document. You shared it prior to us getting on. Uh, the Homeless Rights Advocacy Project issuing a call to action for COVID-19, asking to or demanding or calling for stopping the harm and offering basic support, building systemic capacity for successful outreach, converting uh, convert congregate shelters to individualized individualized units, ensuring uh, safety in uh, safe distances. Uh, increasing temporary individual housing units, bring permanent supportive housing to scale. Which of those, and maybe it's too much to ask to grade us on each of those, but maybe which of those do you see as the next emergent priority? Well, um, I think priority number one for the homeless population is to get folks out of these congregate shelters. Um, you know, the uh, most 
homeless folks who have shelter live in congregate shelters in very close proximity to one another, usually on cots or mattresses that are, um, you know, people are just right next to one another. That's a terrible environment um, in this, in the middle of this pandemic. So where can people go? I mean, ideally, people will be able to go to motels and hotels. Motels and hotels, which are pretty much empty right now, are perfect places because everyone has their own individual space. They have access to a toilet, running water, soap. I mean, all the things that people basically need during this pandemic. And that's starting to happen. I mean, Portland, Multnomah County has done a great job. They've opened up over 200 units. I mean, you probably saw the Jupiter Hotel um, all 81 of their units are, are being occupied by homeless folks right now. Do you know do you um, know the origin of that story? That's a fun story. You know the origin of that story? No. They were listening. They, I didn't know this until I read the story somewhere else, but they were the owner was saying, oh, yeah, we were listening to X-Ray in the morning, and they were on Wednesday, which was because Emily Gilliland was talking to Jessica Vega-Peterson in the county, and we heard about the needs, so after the show, we called them up. That's awesome. <laughs> and, and, and they've gotten a ton of good publicity. And I think other places, you know, uh, Albany has been able to move most of their medically fragile homeless people into hotels and motels. And there's a statewide organization called Hotels with a Heart, and they're trying to, um, you know, leverage these rooms. And there is a willingness. There's also some resistance, not surprisingly, that people don't want sick people or homeless people in their motels or hotels. Um, but communities are working on that. Until that happens, to be honest, people would be better off in RVs or vehicles. And sort of as a last resort, you know, not criminalizing camping during this pandemic is really important and having spacing between tents. I mean, the CDC issued guidance saying that people should be at least 12 feet away from one another if they're camped outside. And, you know, so that's obviously not ideal, but um, during this pandemic, I think it's really important that people aren't ticketed and fined um, for sleeping outside or for sleeping in their vehicle or for, you know, having done, not having up-to-date insurance or lapsed driver's license. I mean, the criminalization of homeless people takes many forms, and I think right now is not the time to be prioritizing that. Any hero, anybody you want to shout out and offer some gratitude to as we close? Well, there's so many folks that are doing great things and um you know there's a woman nargis shadbe who runs our farm worker program and you know it's a it's a community and a population that's often forgotten about and they're all about to go back to work in oregon their situation is not um good their typical living situation is not a good one for the virus and so um, she's already done some great work trying to figure out what's going to happen with all of our farm workers. I mean, talk about essential employees. Um, you know, we need to have our food stream uh, continue and our farm workers make that possible. And so making sure that they have a safe place to live and work is really, really important. And Nargis has done a great job advocating for that. Ed Johnson, Oregon Law Center, thank you so much for your work and thanks so much for spending the time this morning. It was great to talk to you, Jeff. All right, man. Hope to see you in person one of these days. All right. Take care. Next up is our interview with Sonia Montabano, candidate for Multnomah County Circuit Court judge. It's not every day that we get to vote for a judge. Sonia shares how campaigning for a judicial seat is different, how she's prepared for the role, and managing bias on the bench. Thank you so much for joining us. I'll start out how we start out pretty much all of these. Who are you and what are you running for? Why are you running? Um, 
Well, I am one of three daughters to two very hardworking parents. I sometimes think when I tell people about my life, it's something right out of a novel or maybe a Scorsese movie, depending on what you pay attention to. But uh, my mom came here from Sweden when she was 17 from uh, a small farm town. She wanted a better life for herself. And my dad was born on a bed in a tenement in Brooklyn to two Italians who uh, came here also for a better life. And I grew up in New York. Uh, And because I grew up there and because of my background, you know, I really grew up with this idea of the American dream and the melting pot. And anyone could come here from anywhere and be anything they wanted to be. But as I grew up, I looked around and I realized, huh, that is not the case for everyone. And some people had opportunities that others didn't. I found that to be very frustrating. I found that to be very unfair and I wanted to change it. And in my family, there was great respect for the people that we understood had the opportunity to change what we felt was something that was unfair and that was either politicians or lawyers. And so uh, I went to school, I put my way through, I became a lawyer, and for 23 years, uh, that's exactly what I've done. I've worked helping people who were being taken advantage of by their employers by uh, not having their wages paid, people who have been discriminated against, people who have been harassed, people who have been significantly injured in personal injury cases. I've helped people from all walks of life. I've also advised businesses when they wanted to start up, and I've really enjoyed doing that. Just the fact that I'm a lawyer is amazing to me. But I want to be a judge because what I realize is I can walk alongside my client and advocate for them and fight for them and do my best job. But if we go into court and they don't feel that they were treated fairly by the judge or they were listened to or respected, all of the work that I have put in to help them feel that they are getting their fair day in court is for naught. And it's judges that have the ability to do that. I've been fortunate enough to work with a lot of the judges in Multnomah County in different capacities, and I've seen that for the most part, they really work to do that, and I decided that is what I wanted to be a part of, and that's why I'm running. What's at stake in a county circuit court election, and how do voters understand what's at stake? I think voters understand what's at stake by educating themselves and people who do play a more active role in the court system, going out and communicating to them what's at stake and what's important. And that's one of the reasons I'm so appreciative of X-Ray doing these interviews because I don't know that people truly understand what's at stake if it's not impacting them directly. And most people don't find themselves involved in the court system, but what goes on there impacts all of us. I think the things that are at stake in this uh, circuit court election is number one, a sense of integrity in our judicial system and number two, the future of our court system. What do we want that to look like? In respect to the judicial integrity, I think Oregon, with the appointment process, 
historically has a, a good track record. You don't hear a lot of complaints about it. But I think things have been going on at the national level with respect to appointments to the judiciary, where you've seen so many stories in the news where people have called that into question. There has been such divisiveness. You can use the appointment of Brett Kavanaugh as an example, where people are now calling into question, is the judicial system really the fair, uh, the, the level playing field that it's supposed to be? And so here's a unique opportunity for the people of Multnomah County to say, you know what, I'm going to look into the people who are running for judge, and I'm going to decide who is going to best effort represent me or the interests, the things I'm concerned about. And they have a, an opportunity to do that. The other thing in terms of future of the court system, the judges at Multnomah County right now are overwhelmed with the issues that are facing so many of the courts throughout the country. There are an overwhelming number of people coming to them who are in the midst of mental health crises, addiction issues, houselessness, and just the ability to get into the court system uh, and adequate representation. And Multnomah County does a good job of trying to deal with those issues, but it's not working. If it were working, we wouldn't have this revolving door of people who are coming into the court system who really shouldn't be there. And so what's at stake here is what's going to happen in the future to the court system? How will it evolve? Can it evolve? Can we get people on the bench who are going to have thoughtful, creative solutions who have a track record of executing on ideas they have had? That's who you want to be on the bench, someone who's going to come there with an openness to ideas and a willingness to do the work to improve the court system in such a way that it will better serve everyone in the community. We're talking to Sonia Montalbano, I hope I'm pronouncing your name correctly, who is first-generation college student, put herself through college, graduated magna cum laude from Cooney Hunter College, and later earned her JD from Lewis and Clark Law School, now running for one of the first open seats, one of the only open seats that happens with the judiciary here, running for the circuit court. The first time we interviewed judicial candidates, there was a contested seat, but it was somebody who was running against someone who had just been recently appointed. And, excuse me, not an open seat, it was a contested seat. This time, open because the judge who's there isn't running again or and is not going to stay in the judiciary. Sonia is one of four candidates who is running. Sonia, what ends up deciding these races? What ends up being the winning factor or the losing factor? You know, it's interesting you ask that because as you pointed out, this is not something that happens a lot. There can be contested cases, but in an open seat, it hasn't happened for a long time. I worked on the campaign for Judge Cheryl Albright. She's now the chief criminal judge in Multnomah County. And when she ran, I think what made the difference in that case is we were able to really get her message out and introduce her to the voters in a way where they connected with her. That is what I think makes the difference. Understanding that the person who is coming to you and introducing themselves, asking for your support, is a real person. They will understand your issues. They will treat you in a way that you would want to be treated or you'd want your mother, your brother, your sister, who had to appear before them. And, uh, you know, back then we did it sort of the old-fashioned way. We, we had her in parades. And, you know, we had her going to different public events. Uh, and what I was astounded by, what I learned from that was how many people said, wow, 
first they said, I didn't know judges ran. I didn't understand that. And number two, I didn't know judges got elected. I've never met a judge. I think so this does surprise folks. I think it surprises folks because, in part, the campaigns are smaller and they're also more seldom. I think it surprises a lot of people. Yeah, yeah, I agree. So uh, in this case, it's it, it, we're facing some – it's a different playing field out there because, you know, what you want to do is connect with people and let them know who you are and what you want to do and now you have to figure out a way to do it from a socially appropriate distance. <laughs> now, we're not allowed to ask. I can't say, well, you let my cousin Vinny off for his parking tickets, right? How are you <laughs> going to decide the following cases? We don't, those questions are not sort of within bounds. But here's one that I think is, how do you manage your own bias? How do you recognize it? How do you flush it out? And or how do you embrace it? How do you apply it? Talk to us about bias. Well, I one of the things I think we've all come to learn over the last few years is everybody uh, has bias. No matter how evolved a person you think you are, it's just by virtue of uh, growing up. And what you need to do is be mindful that you might be biased and really do the hard work to question it, figure it out, get past it, and check it at the door. One of the things I am really grateful about is having grown up in New York, where I was surrounded by different communities, cultures, languages, religions. I feel very fortunate to have what I like to call a cultural competency. Uh, you know, I come from a background that is not a traditional background for becoming a lawyer, much less a judge. And uh, as a result, I feel that gives me the, will give me the ability to connect with the people uh, that are in front of me, and that will outweigh, you know, the the I hope the you know the implicit biases that that we all share. But really, I think the most important thing is be aware of them. Don't be afraid to admit you might have them. Do the work, ask the questions, and then do what you can to check it at the door. What's been the most challenging part about campaigning? You already mentioned that you can't raise money, and every candidate for every office in heck anywhere is trying to figure out how to campaign in the context of Zoom and chat lines as distinct from <laughs> knocking on doors and house parties. What's been most challenging to you about this campaign? I do think that the inability to meet with people has been the most challenging part. I am someone who loves to talk with people. I'm very much a doer and having the inability to go out and introduce myself to people and talk with them and listen. I want to be able to hear from people what their concerns are about the court. And those opportunities have definitely been abbreviated as a result of uh, COVID-19. Now, the good news is that campaigns are flexible and they figure out different ways to get around those obstacles. And one of the things that that will entail is probably there will be much more mail than there was in a typical judicial election. So uh, that may go a long way towards helping the post office, which is what you were just talking about. <laughs> Anything a judge has ever done that either with you as the lawyer or just with you watching in some other manner that inspired you or said, you know what, if I'm a judge someday, I want to act like that? Yes, yes. I had a case recently um, in Multnomah County where uh, my client experienced a very significant, traumatic, life-changing personal injury. 
and it was hard fought, and it was before a judge, and it was a long trial. It was a two and a half week trial, and jurors are giving up a lot when they agree to sit on a panel for that long. And I felt the judge in that case did what I would use as a textbook going forward in my own role as a judge in terms of explaining to the jury their role, the importance of it, giving them the opportunity to ask questions and ensuring that uh, the parties and my client was truly given the opportunity to present her case. So that is that is something I very much appreciate. And that, you know, that instructing the jury is critical because they have to understand how important their role is. And uh, as I said, giving giving them the ability to ask questions so that the parties are afforded the opportunity to get a fair outcome. You have a favorite Supreme Court justice, alive or immortal? <laughs> the immortal Ruth Bader Ginsburg is my favorite Supreme Court justice. Um, she, I, I, I love her for so many reasons, but mostly because she uh, comes from Brooklyn. She grew up not far from my father. They were roughly the same age. And she was held up as an example to me of, look, look what you can do with your life. Look how far you can go. Um, the, the, the things that she fought for, how she fought for them, her intelligence, her savviness, and her ability to get along with people who disagree with her, most famously Antonin Scalia. Uh, I really admire that, and I would hope to emulate her in every way possible should I be fortunate enough to be elected to the bench. Including never, ever dying. Sonia Montalbano, thank you so much for spending time with us this morning. Thank you so much, Jefferson, for bringing this race to the public's attention. I really appreciate it. Thanks to Emily, Ed, and Sonia for joining The Local. And thank you for listening to The Local, your hometown in about 30 minutes. Write a review, give us a five-star rating. Tell some friends about it. If you got story ideas, do send us an email at thelocal at xray.fm. I'm Jefferson Smith. Talk to you tomorrow. In the meantime, stay home, stay connected, and thank you, democracy.